How you doing? Glad you're here. Well, it's the biggest day of church. It's, it's, it's Resurrection Sunday. It's so important. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, it's the last Sunday in this series. We did, a, we did a year-long series, which is a really long series today. Nobody does that anymore. Uh, where we went through the Bible in a year. So we've kind of raced through the 66 books of the Bible. Today's the last Sunday of that. We're starting a new series next week called Living Free. Uh, it's a study in the book of Galatians. We're going to talk about how do you live free of shame and legalism. Uh, you know, how do we deal with, with those things in our life? How do we live free from past pain? Anybody got pain from your past? Anybody made any mistakes? Anybody had any? Anyway, yeah, all of us. Uh, how can we live free from our natural tendencies? Because we're all very, uh, a little screwed up. And we need the power of the Spirit to help us walk in the fruit of the Spirit. And how can we live purpose-filled lives? Because we all want our lives to count. We don't want to waste our lives. We want to use our lives to the best possible use. So we're going to talk about that. And then how to use the freedom that you have to serve other people. Because that's one thing that God calls us to do. So today, we're going to, we're, as we end this year-long series, we're going to talk about the resurrection, how important it is. The, really, the reality of the resurrection... It's so important because Christianity rises and falls on whether the resurrection happened or not. If it's a lie, if the resurrection is a made-up story, then we're all wasting our time. But if it's the truth, it's the most important truth in the universe. It's the most important verse in time. It's the most important verse reality that has happened. If Jesus was raised from the dead then it changes everything. So that's what we're calling this today. It changes everything. The Apostle Paul, who started out as an enemy of the early church, he was fighting with everything that he had to destroy the early church. He was killing and executing people that confessed to be followers of Christ. He had an encounter with Christ, and he became a follower of Christ himself. And he became even more, even, even more passionate about following Christ than he was about following the law. And here's what he said about the resurrection. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Did Jesus really live? Was he a real historical person? Did he do and say the miracles that he did and say the things that he said? Did he die on a cross for our sins? And most importantly, did he come back to life on the third day? So we want to talk about that a little bit today. First of all, was Jesus a real historical person? Because some would say, you know, <laughs> there's no end of crazy documentaries that you can watch on television. Because, I don't know if you know this or not, but aliens built this building. Uh, 
There'll be a documentary about it soon. No, I mean, there's all that kind of stuff. All kind, you know, alien invasion. And, and, then they, and they like to talk about Christianity. And they'll say that, you know, there's not really good evidence that Christianity, that Christ existed. But there really is. Uh, there's overwhelming evidence in that the first hundred years of Christianity, there were 5,000 manuscripts that were written about Christ. And that's, you know, in the church, people, Christians, were writing about Christ. But secular, non-Christian sources mentioned Jesus in the first 150 years. Here's just a sampling. Josephus, probably the most famous Jewish historian. Tacitus, who is a Roman historian also. Pliny the Younger, a politician of Rome. Philegian, a freed slave who wrote histories. Lucian, Greek satirist and Celsus, a Roman philosopher, an opponent of Christianity, and others that wrote in the first years about Christ and the reality that Christ lived. In comparison, Julius Caesar, anybody heard of Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar's military conquest in which he killed a million people are only mentioned by four writers other than Caesar himself. We have good history that Jesus was a real person who lived in history. And we have good, good evidence that what he said and the things that he said are true. The character that Jesus displayed was unquestioned by both friend and foe, that Jesus was a great man and a moral teacher. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees, who at this very time are plotting to kill Jesus, they describe him this way. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Even today, even today, major religions acknowledge that Jesus was a wise and moral teacher. The Jews believed Jesus was Mary's son was a teacher, a rabbi, and he had many disciples, was respected, performed miracles, claimed to be the Messiah, and was crucified on the cross. They also acknowledged his followers reported Jesus was raised from the dead. Muslims believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, is to be revered and respected, was a prophet, a wise teacher who worked miracles, ascended to heaven, and will come again. Ahamidia Muslims I know I didn't say that right, but uh, believe Jesus may have been born of a virgin, was a prophet and wise teacher, worked miracles, and was crucified on a cross. Baha'i faith believe Jesus came from God, was a wise teacher, and had divine and human nature, worked miracles, was crucified, and was resurrected as an atonement for humanity. Hindus believe Jesus was a holy man a wise teacher, and is a God, of which they have over 3,500. Buddhists believe Jesus was an enlightened man and a wise teacher. The Dalai Lama, who speaks for the main Buddhist sect, uh, considers Jesus and Buddha to be equals. New Age believers maintain Jesus was a wise moral teacher. So even those who don't believe in him recognize him as a, for his teaching and for who he was. 
Jesus himself claimed that he lived a sinless life. Jesus said of himself uh, that he lived a sinless life. In John chapter 8, verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? No one said, I saw you sitting. I saw, hey, Jesus, I saw you at Red Lobster last week. Lobster's unclean food. I don't know if you get that, okay? It's a real obscure joke and not funny, but, you know. You know, how many of us could try that? I haven't sinned. Try that at home. See what kind of response you get. Jesus was able to say, I haven't sinned. Which one of you convicts me of sin? And no one condemned him. The works of Jesus went unchallenged. It's really not disputed that he fed the 5,000 or that lame people walked because lame people did walk and blind people could see. One of the most fascinating stories to me in the Bible is the blind man who came to Jesus who'd been blind from birth. And it says Jesus then spat on the ground. And uh, he made mud pies and he put them in the man's eyes, which is really pretty much the only thing you can do to a blind man because anybody else would have left if they saw that he sped on the ground to do it. I, this is an incredible miracle. This, this man who was blind from birth, that Jesus made eyes for him out of mud and he became seen. He did tremendous miracles and there, it was evidenced. He raised Lazarus from the dead. His raising of Lazarus from the dead was like the last straw to the Pharisees. It was that act that caused them to decide to kill Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief, chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. There were eyewitness accounts to the miracles that validated his miracles. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet, the man who was lame. He took up the pallet that he was laid on, and he went out in the sight of all. And they all were amazed, were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The identity of Jesus was validated, that he was God in the flesh. Jesus said very clearly, John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now here's the, here's the thing about Jesus claiming to be God. If Jesus isn't God, he's crazy. He's mentally off, right? If Jesus isn't God, then as a matter of fact, his family at one point were so concerned that he was calling himself the Messiah that his brothers and his sisters tried to, you know, deal with him, confront him. James being one of those. But Jesus says of himself, I and the Father are one. God and I are one and the same. And we believe that. We believe that Jesus is God. We believe what he said, that I and the Father are one, is he's confirming the fact that he and the Father are one. He's just not a good man. He was a good man, and he was a good teacher, but he was not just a good man and not just a good teacher. He was also God in the flesh. 
God the Father gave him this pronouncement. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This was when Peter and John went with Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and there they saw Jesus and Moses, and God spoke to them. And I believe one of the things that God is saying to Peter, because Peter was always talking too much, he was saying to Peter, Peter, you need to talk less and listen more. This is the son. This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. So much so that uh, his followers, Peter being the first to say, but I say that you're Christ, the son of the living God. And this is an interesting thing. And by extra biblical sources, Pliny the Younger, who is, who is uh, like a governor in the province that is, we would now consider Turkey, He's, he is persecuting Christians uh, because the Romans persecuted everybody. The Romans were paranoid because there were always, you know, they had conquered all these individual territories and then they would put uh, figurehead leaders of their own and of, their, of, of the people that they were governing. Like Herod was the governor of Judea, but Pilate was actually the Roman commander over the area. And they would do this. And so because they had conquered all these areas, just as in Jerusalem, in every other area, they would always have little revolts of people that wanted to fight against this Roman incursion into their land. You can imagine if the Romans conquered Texas tomorrow, that there would be some ongoing conflict, right? That we'd want to get Texas back. Same thing is true. So in all these territories, the Romans were paranoid of groups that gathered. They didn't like for groups to gather because they always felt like there was some kind of sedition taking place, some kind of revolution that was being fomented. So they, they didn't like any groups to gather at all. And one of the things that the Christians did was gather in groups on Sunday. And so it made the Romans paranoid. They, they didn't like any groups to gather particularly groups of soldiers because they feared a coup. And you can, for good reason. I mean, the life expectancy of a Caesar was not good. You were likely to be killed by your own family, your wife or your sons or your friends. So they were all paranoid. So Pliny the Younger is writing to Trajan, who is the emperor at the time, and he's describing to him how he deals with Christians in 111 AD. I ask them if they are Christians, and if they admit it, I repeat it and ask them a second time, and a third time with warning of the punishment. If they persist, I order to have them led away and executed. They also declare the sum total of their guilt amounted to no more than this. They met regularly before dawn 
on a fixed day to chant verses alternately among themselves in honor of Christ as if to a God. And also to bind themselves to an oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery. So let's kill those people. Right? They're afraid of the Christians, and they're afraid that they might lead some kind of revolt. And so they persecuted them, and they killed them. And basically Trajan wrote back and said, good job. Keep at it. Now, one of the things that people say about the death of Christ is that Jesus didn't really die, that he, he fainted. So, so the, when they put him in the tomb, in the, the coolness of the tomb, uh, this, you know, this tomb that was hewn from rock, and they laid him on this slab of stone that was cool, that it revived him. So he wasn't really dead, but that he came back to life. That's, they call that the swoon theory. Now I want you to think about this. The Romans were really good at killing people. They had crucified thousands and thousands. There was, at one, there was one time that they crucified 3,000 at a time along the Appian Way. They, they, they didn't struggle with how to crucify people. They knew how to do it. And they had killed a lot of people, and they knew when someone was dead. They didn't question whether Jesus was dead. Uh, his friends believed he was dead. His enemies believed he was dead. The evidence would have been one of the things that happened is that they didn't break any of Jesus' bones, but they thrust a spear up under his rib, which would have pierced his heart, the pericardium sac, and the Bible says blood and water flowed out. So his heart had been pierced with a sword. And then the Bible tells us that Nicodemus and Joseph prepared his body for burial. They took him to the tomb, which was not far away. There was a garden where Jesus died, it says in the scripture. And in the garden was a new tomb that Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea had, had built. It was new. So he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It was not normal for people who had been crucified to be buried. They were normally, as part of the, part of the, uh, the ignominy of being crucified, was to humiliate them, to make them a public spectacle. So basically, they would throw them all in a pile, just a pile of bodies that they were just allowing to rot, just as a show. Often they would, often they would as punishment, they would hang someone up in a public space for a long period of time just to show that this person defied Rome. And they did the same thing with crucifixion. So uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus went to this tomb. They, Joseph got the body from Pilate. He asked for the body from Pilate. And then he took him to the tomb and they wrapped this body in a hundred pounds of spices. Now, if you, if you had been flogged, and nearly beat to death with all the stripes on your back. And then you'd hung on a cross with nails through your hands and your feet, and then pierced with a sword. 
A cold slab's not going to make you better. It's going to take a little more than that, right? He was dead. And it was evident that he was dead. Then only those who crucified him, but those who prepared his body, and they put him in the tomb and believed that was it. The other theory is the disciples stole the body. That Jesus' disciples stole the body. Now, a couple of things against this. One, they... These disciples, who apparently had one sword among them because Jesus, uh, Peter used it to cut off Malchus's ear, and Jesus put it back on. But that's one of the events of his arrest. So they apparently had one sword. So these guys with one sword who were, who were fishermen went against the, the Roman guards at the tomb and overpowered them. Not likely. The Roman seal had been put on the tomb, which in breaking that seal was the penalty of death. And the penalty for the guard sleeping would have been death. They didn't steal his body because they weren't expecting him to be alive. It wasn't even on their radar. It wasn't on their radar that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. Now, he had told them, but they didn't get it. On, on Sunday morning, when Mary and the other women went to the tomb... They weren't looking for an alive Jesus. They were going there because they knew that two men had prepared the body of Jesus and they didn't believe it had been done right. So they went to redo it because it had been done in haste. So they went to redo it. So they, when they went to redo it, they weren't expecting Jesus to not be there. It wasn't on their radar. The resurrection was not on their radar. Even though he had said it, they didn't get it. They, they were expecting him to be dead. Their hopes were dashed. And they expected him to be dead. When they went to the tomb, so much so when they ran to tell Peter and John that the tomb was empty. The consensus was they've stolen his body. Come, come, come. They've taken the Lord's body. You see, that they didn't have a strategy. They didn't have a plan to steal his body. I mean, think about, think about it. Hey, guys, listen. We're all huddled in this little room afraid because we're afraid that we're next. They killed him, and we're nobodies. They're going to come to us next. So they're huddled in a room for fear, and in that room they decide, hey, guys, let's do this. Let's go steal his body and tell people that he was resurrected, and then they'll come and kill all of us because of that. And then we'll die for that. We'll die for this made-up story. It's, it's, it doesn't make sense. I mean, think about that. Are you going to die for a made-up story? Nobody, nobody's nobody's going nobody's to die for something that's not the truth. And, you, and then your argument might be, well, there are people who die for not the truth all the time. There are people who strap TNT to their bodies. And believe when they blow it up, they're going to paradise. So they die 
for a lie all the time. But it's a lie they believe, not a lie they've made up. Nobody is going to give their life for a lie they said. Nobody's going to lay down their life for their own lie. The disciples all gave up their life because they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They believed that there was something different, that something had happened, that Jesus had changed. Jesus appeared, not just once, but in many times, so that they were all convinced. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you, again, this is Paul, Paul who was against the church, saying this, I delivered you of first important that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So why does he say that? There's 500 people that were alive when it happened. He's saying, there's some people that have have died, but hey, there's still about 500 people you can ask about seeing Jesus, and they saw Jesus. They were alive. They they saw it, and they're still alive. Then he appeared to James, his brother. He didn't believe it. Remember, his brother thought he was crazy. This guy thinks the Messiah, thinks he's the Messiah. And then James saw the resurrected Christ and he said, he is the Messiah. And James then gave his life. He died as a martyr for the belief that Jesus, his brother, was the son of God, was God, and was resurrected. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born. He appeared to me also, from the least of the apostles, and I am not fit to be called apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And you see, then you see this incredible thing happen. These cowards become brave. The ones that were hiding in the room, that were they're afraid to speak. After the day of Pentecost, they come out of the upper room. Peter speaks to the crowd, and he says to the crowd, Hey, y'all are the ones who crucified Jesus. You did it. That doesn't seem like the thing that a, a coward would say to a large crowd. Hey, just want you to know, you're the ones who crucified Jesus. And that day, in the boldness of his preaching, 3,000 people came to salvation in Christ in that first sermon And then the church just exploded in Jerusalem. And the disciples stood by it all of their lives, knowing that they would die. They didn't die for a lie. They died for the truth. And it's affirmed by history. The impact of the resurrection is unbelievable. As a matter of fact, the the resurrection has had so much impact that we don't recognize it. Our world is so changed from the world that Jesus walked into. From the world that was controlled by Roman and Greek philosophy. That world has been transformed and was transformed because God came in the flesh and died in our place. 
the culture that we experience today is the result of the resurrection. But we've been so immersed in it, we don't see it. There's a historian named Tom Holland, and he's written several books about the rise of Islam, the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire. Uh, He's on BBC. He's done several documentaries. He's an atheist. So he doesn't, doesn't believe in God. But here's what he says about the impact of Christ on culture. Remember, as I read this, he's an atheist. Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. It's the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It's why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and profoundly Christian. When I speak to atheists, remember he is an atheist, who say that morals such as helping the weak are obvious, I know they're wrong about this. If they are so obvious to everyone, Western civilization would not be as unique in history as it is. They are obvious to us because we're a product of our culture, and our culture is a product of Christianity, and Christianity is the worship of Jesus. Jesus was the one who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, leaving his perfect comfort to suffer and die for us. Us. Jesus was the one who washed his disciples' feet and said, the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. I'm among you as one that serves. Jesus was the one who invited little children and blind people to come to him, even as others tried to shoo them away as a waste of time. Jesus radically changed the world. We take the ideas of our society for granted, and we assume they'll always be here. But the most beautiful ideas of our culture came from Jesus, and they won't survive here for long without him. I want you to think about, this man's an atheist, but he recognizes that it is the impact of the resurrection and the birth of the church that has changed our culture. Now, the church through the centuries has made some horrendous mistakes that we are guilty of because, I don't know if you know this, but people do bad stuff all the time. But the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection makes it possible for those that have, all of us that have been lost to sin to be found. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to take those of us who had no identity in him and cause us to be sons of God and now call us his family and his friends and his beloved and his cherished. That now we are the sons of God. God's unique plan is this. Jesus Christ came died for our sins and through the resurrection, God changes the world 
one person at a time. The way God impacted the world is that individuals surrendered their will to God's will, and in that, in being followers of Christ, then they began to try to act like Jesus. And then in trying to act like Jesus, they changed the world. That's our call. Sometimes I think in the church, we try to focus too much on those that are out there. It's not focusing enough on what's going on in here. Because the way God changes culture is that he changes us. The way he makes a difference is that he makes us different. And so what happened is that the first century church lived differently. They lived a different set of values than the Roman culture. They valued children that had been discarded by society. They would rescue those that had been put in the garbage dump dump, and raise them as their own. They took care of those that were sick and dying from the black plague. And even if you look around here today, if you drive through this city, you'll find that a a lot of it's been erased by the greed of culture today, but most of the hospitals that were built in this city were built by Christians taking care of people. Baylor is Baptist and Presbyterian is Presbyterian. And Methodist is Methodist. And all through the city, the Church of Satan hadn't built a lot of hospitals. (laughs) Right? Because Jesus makes a difference in us so that our values are different because they're the values of Christ. So the right... Christ changes the world is that he changes us. The resurrection is the power for you and I to change and to be more like Jesus. That's our prayer today. Lord, work on us. May the resurrection power make us more like Jesus so that we would see not only ourselves changed, but the world. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. We really believe he was here. We believe he was God. We believe he did wonderful things and said wonderful things. And we believe he died in our place. I believe that he bore my sins in his body on the cross. And I believe he he died my death. I believe that because of that, he went deeper into death than anyone has ever gone because he didn't just die death for himself, but he tasted death for every man. And then on the third day, he defeated death and rose again to give us newness of life. I believe in the resurrection. I believe you're alive. And I believe you live in us today. So that we can be changed. And we can change the world. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a great Easter. It's good to see you.
you sleeping? 